90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, John. How are you? <laughs> Wait, you're not Matt. <laughs> I've got a bone to pick with him. My voice is not that high. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say, Dr. Hall. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's been a while since we actually recorded. I know. I can't believe you cheated on me. (laughs) Well, so we had one week where you had a a little bit of an emergency trip that you had to make. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then uh, the next week, recorded with Matt. And then here we are. Here we are. We've even seen each other in the flesh since then, which is weird. It's true. Uh, You happened to be close by and came over and spent a a Saturday afternoon with us. That was fantastic. And we uh, separately saw a giant steam locomotive. Um, It's rocked my child's world for sure. (laughs) I don't know if you're still talking about it every night before you go to bed, but my daughter is still talking about that train every night before she goes to bed. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> it's so cute. It blew her mind. It was that the Union Pacific big boy. So she loves walking around saying, I saw a big boy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so loud. And she said it scared her, but she still thought it was cool. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty great. <laughs> so when I was in Houston, it went through Houston and I saw it sitting, not moving. At the Amtrak station in Houston, okay. which that was by far the most people that have been in that Amtrak station cumulatively <laughs> in the last 20 years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but I, I was talking to, to Matt and some of the other guys down there, and I said, well, let's let's get in an Uber and go down the street. There's a train I want to see. And they thought I was crazy. <laughs> and when we got down there, they were like, whoa. So this thing's like, uh, it's one and a quarter million pounds. That's and it was so big. It was a big boy indeed. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's a steam locomotive, but it was backed up by a bunch of diesel engines. <laughs> well, yeah, so they're there in case it has issues and to provide yeah, electrical yeah. power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was still super cool. Uh, it was super loud. Like I said, it, it, my ta- my hometown, Claremore, is swamped with trains constantly. There's three train tracks. It's only a town of, you know, 17,000 people or something. And so there's trains constantly. But this guy went through and there were so many people and there were two drones hovering above it. And I've never seen engineers in a train look more nervous (laughs) because the tracks were just swamped with people. There was someone climbing the signal tower. It was insanity. (laughs) Like, I'd like to imagine, like, that's what it looked like, like in the... You know, in the early 1900s when people would go and see trains. So it was kind of neat, too, in that way, you know? Yeah, I couldn't believe, you know, I I didn't think there would be that many people that were interested. But the road, you know, I just saw it go by on the road when we drove over into Oklahoma near Inola. Mm -hmm. And just as far as you could see in both directions was a solid line of cars pulled off the road with people. Yeah, just just to watch them. Yeah, there were, I mean, thousands of people, I think, in Claremore. Um, because it stopped there too, so it was it was super exciting. Yeah, but I know that the uh, the crew is getting a bit frayed nerves because they've been doing this big loop. Oh, like I said, they there was no waving from the people in the train. <laughs> Those engineers just had their eyes glued to the track and all the people around it. So I can't even imagine because it's not like you're going to take a million pounds and stop it on a dime. No, not at all. Yeah. So it was, I was scared for them, but also, of course, I was as close as I could get because it was super cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was fun. That was super cool. The weather was amazing for it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we got to, uh, we got to meet up and chat and figure out what we were going to talk about this week and seeing all those people out there that were interested in something you said how about citizen science yeah i'm real obsessed with this (laughs) 
both as a participant and as someone who wants to create citizen science initiatives. So I, this is one thing I, I wish we would have sort of polled our audience before, but we have a lot of people that always write us. So that's something I definitely would love to hear a lot of feedback about this show, just because this is always really interesting, right? So NSF, our big funding, our big funding agency, but also other funding agencies like the NIH, the National Institutes of Health and stuff, you know, there's a big push to make this thing called broader impacts <laughs> and to make it meaningful, right? Right, because formerly in your grant application, you'd say the broader impact is I'm going to train graduate students. Right. <laughs> and that doesn't really fly anymore, nor should it. No, exactly. Um, so everyone always wants me on their grants because they're like, oh, you have a, a podcast that's already in already in play. It's not something that we're going to do specifically for this grant. And we're going to do it twice and then forget that it exists. Right. Right. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. Um, but there are some excellent broader impacts, like some proposals that have come through that I've read and reviewed and stuff. I'm really impressed. And so I'm very excited about this in general. And this year we participated in one that was pretty close to home. So I just thought this was something we could talk about, like which ones we've used, which ones we've done. But I'd also love to hear from everybody out there to see if they're planning any citizen science or which ones that they like to participate in too. Right. And I think we're going to try to line up a, a guest on this as well. But uh, you suggested we start off talking about how we have been involved in citizen science. And it turns out we had the first, uh, the same first citizen science project that we did. <laughs> You'll be able to talk more about this because I don't even know what it did. <laughs> I just knew that I had a computer and I wanted to help search for extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial intelligence. <laughs> right. You know, uh, so this was the SETI at home. Mm-hmm project and you installed it on your computer it could either run all the time or just run like when your screensaver came on mm-hmm. when you had spare cycles mm-hmm. and this took radio telescope data and did a bunch of frequency domain analysis on it to see what was happening and they animated it as a really interesting looking screensaver yeah i i think i sat in front of my computer when the screensaver was on more than i actually sat in front of it to use it <laughs> Yeah, and so it would download a packet of data, and it would work on that packet, depending on how good your computer was. When I was doing this back in 2000, I'm going to say two, three, four, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. uh, it would take my computer several days up to a week to go through a packet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you would get a packet count, which, like whose line is it anyway? You know, everything's made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> right. It just, uh, but it was something it gamified it a little. <laughs> yes, exactly. It made you think you were doing a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. I remember that. <laughs> That's sort of this idea of distributed computing. You take the the big problem, you chunk it up into little pieces, and get volunteers to let you use their unused hardware mm-hmm. to help you solve your problem. Does do they still do this? I don't know if it's still active or not. I don't know if it is either. I briefly got on when I remembered this and was like, oh, this is really the first citizen science I did when I was, you know, 19 or something. Um, And I I couldn't find out where they were doing, if they were doing it anymore. But man, the ubiquitousness of computers has certainly made that open for a whole range of other things. And I, I just looked up, yes, it is still an active project. Yes. Uh, oh, they go great. through uh, B-O-I-N-C, Boink, maybe? I would assume. <laughs> which is a, a framework that lets you distribute your job. So it's used by, it says, 30 science projects. Einstein at home, World Community Grid, SETI at home, etc. So these projects where they can chunk up the computing and have volunteers run it. So Boink is a common framework for that. So you download and install oh. Boink, and then you choose the project that you want to work on. That's cool. Okay. Maybe I'll do that again, just for old time's sake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so study at home, man, that's wonderful. Um, I think there's somebody actually in our hallway that's still doing it. I walked by their computer, and I thought, that looks super familiar. <laughs> But I didn't know it was just an old computer. 
or what. Yeah. <laughs> but um, apparently it's still going. So that's neat. Gosh, that's crazy. And you can just choose what you want to donate your spare computer and power to. That's fun. Yeah, I mean, I've got a uh, a computer at my shop that's even got a GPU in it, so I may have to... Ooh, there you go. May have to install that. Hmm. Interesting. So we shared that first one. What else have you done? <laughs> you know, I mean, I've done things like uh, reporting precipitation types. Oh. Well, I did that as a researcher. <laughs> Through ending. The... <laughs> yeah, okay. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And that's still an active project. It's a very simple one. You download the MPing app, mm-hmm. M-P-I-N-G, and then if you're experiencing precipitation or extreme weather, you get on there and say it's snowing or it's raining or it's sleeting or there's a tornado. And they collect all of these and can do a lot more detailed. It's very hard to tell with radar, okay, is it really snowing here? Right, yeah, exactly. It's hard to tell with ASOS, so you need lots of eyes out there, and everybody loves to say, it snowed at my house. And now you can say, you're a liar. (laughs) Well, now you can say, it snowed at my house on the app, and then we get to use that data as scientists to help improve what we know about reading and forecasting those events. Which is important to the insurance industry, so you can tell people they're liars, too. (laughs) Also that. Sorry, we've been talking a lot about that for no apparent reason recently, just talking about insurance, and that's kind of a big deal. Oh, there are apparent reasons, but... Yeah. <laughs> okay, yep, I remember imping. Um, There's one that I started when I was putting together my notes for this. I thought, is this really citizen science? Maybe this, um, Maybe this is citizen science, and it is, but it's not from this country. But it's this thing called PlantNet, and it's just an app that I got ages ago, ages ago, a couple of years ago. Um, The A is an at in plant, if you're looking for it. And I use this thing every week. It's unbelievable. Um, So what does it do? So it's changed a lot lately. Um... It's a plant ID app, and I just thought it was a plant ID app. I didn't realize that it was sort of citizen science-backed, but it is. And so you take a picture of a plant, and now it's been updated. It's been around since almost – it's been around almost 10 years now. Um, And you tell it what part you're taking a picture of. So, you know, bark, flower, leaf, whatever. And it kind of leads you through this little decision matrix. And then it's like, okay – this is your plant, or is this your plant? And it presents you with tons of pictures, and all the pictures are user-supplied and, like, user and scientist verified. So that's where the citizen science part is. So you're helping curate a machine learning data set. Correct. I have yet to... There's one thing that it hasn't been able to identify, and I use this, like I said, constantly, and obviously I travel a lot out into the field, there's some really weird plants in the desert, man. <laughs> and only one time has it not failed or has it failed to identify my plant on the first, like, two options. Wow. Yes. And it's usually the first option. I would say 90% of the time, the very first picture, I'm like, yep, yeah, that's it. It's unreal. And they've just, they just updated it this summer. And obviously, I use it at field camp a lot. I've... I'm not going to say I've mastered all the rocks there, but I know a lot about the rocks there. <laughs> so now I've moved on to investigating the plants. <laughs> right. And so this summer they did a, a big update on the app, which was, it just made it unbelievably user-friendly and it's super cool and you can upload your own pictures to go along with it and add it to the database. And I looked it up. It's through this like French Academia Industry Consortia that it got funded and it's it's global that's what's even cooler is that it's from all over the world it's the first thing you do is choose like where you're at and then it gives you stuff for that particular location hmm okay yeah i know and so on the update too they added all these links it reminded me of using um flyover country actually i don't know if they looked at plant net when they did this um because there are links 
in there to like the Wikipedia articles about the plants. And then, you know, all of there's sort of like, there's some like fun articles about some of the plants and all this stuff. Huh. It's, yeah, it's real intense if you're into plants. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's fantastic. So plantnet with an A is the at symbol in plant and it's super great and it's cool because it's global you know i think that's really neat too to think that there are other plant nerds everywhere (laughs) that are taking pictures and uploading them for my use here at home so have you tried you said it leads you through kind of a decision tree Mm -hmm. uh have you tried with a one of your smart devices i do it with the amazon smart device uh playing 20 questions i don't have smart devices Fair. Okay. Next time you're at somebody's house who has an Amazon smart device, play 20 questions with it. That's creepy. That scares me. And that's why I don't have smart devices. It's very good. That's scary, John. And it shows you the power of binary search. Yeah. It's spying on you. That's why. Well, no, I mean, you can ask, uh, you know, with binary search, you're always cutting the possibility space in half. Yeah. And so if you know the right questions to ask, you can very quickly narrow down. So did you have the little 20 questions little game, like the little handheld game from... No, I never had the handheld game. Like 20 years ago? No, it was, yeah, it was probably longer than that. There's a little handheld game that does it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, just like one of those little stocking stuffer things. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's correct a vast majority of the time. Yes, it is. Even on pretty obscure things. It's creepy. Uh, I've tried some more obscure minerals, and every now and then that tricks it up. (laughs) Good luck getting epidote. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It's it's miningmindat.org every time you're like, hey, Alexa. (laughs) Well, especially, sorry for our listeners who just had their devices activated. (laughs) I did that on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But no, it's it's one of those things too where I may have been feeding it bad data because, yeah, go ahead and ask me about the uh, the streak or the symmetry of epidote. <laughs> I, don't I actually remember. I meant to start our banter today, asking you what the chemical formula for olivine was. It's iron something. <laughs> so this happened to me in class today. <laughs> nothing... I remember there's iron and magnesium, and they substitute. And silica, there's some silica in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, there's nothing to uh, undermine your authority in a graduate level class <laughs> when, yeah, someone asks, okay, besides iron, what else is liberated when we weather olivine? <laughs> <laughs> I think we better go. It's raining outside. You guys should leave. <laughs> this is so. why you need your geochemist friend. I know. I, t- I told everyone I'm trying to I'm trying to not knock chemistry as much because I found out <laughs> that uh, a group of geochemists slash hydrologists listened, like binge listened to our podcast all the way to and home from Leadville, <laughs> which is <laughs> quite a drive. And their professor was in the car and then he made fun of me a whole bunch. So. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it is funny because working on projects with my intern right now, you know, I always say, like, you know, this topic is very important, so make sure you say it. And then, you know, chemistry comes up, like, well, material science is very important, and chemistry is very important. Uh, (laughs) He's like, but isn't that kind of physics? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) But when you say something like physics is very important, there's somebody that's going to say, isn't that kind of mathematics? And you go, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then the mathematicians smugly smile and say QED. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Gosh, I love this argument. It's always better fueled by beer, but yes, this is this is good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay, so anyway. th- that's that's plant ned. Uh, uh-huh. But you've also done a, a different one that's also bio-related, right? Uh, yeah, I, I know. When I put together my list for this a while back, I was like, oh, this is something we should talk about. All my stuff is biology-related, I guess because, obviously, I wanted to be a biologist and decided against it because IRB is too hard to deal with. Uh, 
And so we did this thing. It was so cool. And it was called the BioBlitz, which is a normal biology thing, it turns out. Um, and a BioBlitz is where over a short amount of time, you get a whole lot of people together and you do a an inventory of a location or something like that. So all the living things you can find in this 24 hours. And so the Oklahoma Biological Survey does this. And we participated in it this year. And it was so cool and so well run and so much fun. So what did what was your job in this? I went camping. That was my job. <laughs> <laughs> so in the notes, I said we participated in quotes because, yeah, it's hard to participate with children sometimes. And so my friend and her son and me and my two kids went camping at this. It's held every year in a different state park in Oklahoma. And so we went to Tequoia State Park in northeast Oklahoma. And went and it was it was cool because they had so many biologists there and then a lot of local state park people um there was actually the coolest thing i learned was the amount of volunteer opportunities available at the state parks because we actually went on a reptile finding trip with these high school guys who volunteer all the time there and it was neat because there were high school kids who were going on in their education in biology and they were knowledgeable enough i mean they led gosh there was i don't know 75 people that went on this herp hunt essentially wow with them mm-hmm. which we were at the back because i have a two-year-old and by then every living thing around was scared to death and had run away because right. <laughs> 75 people walking through the woods are not quiet um but it was things like that. It was really cool. Um, so they had night hikes where they did, you know, identifications. And they did a whole part on the fish in the area and how you count fish and like a demo on that. And then they had, apparently, this is super cool too. There was a, a bus, a bat bus that was there and had a whole bunch of bat, different types of bats, specimens alive that you could go in and look at and they talked about those and all that. Um, and so it was just a really cool, like it was this animal count and you had a sheet of paper and you could bring it back at the end of the 24 hours and they would count and help you ID and all this stuff. They ask that you take pictures, don't try to catch things and then right. they help you ID them and then they put them into their official tally. It was super cool. Hmm. Yeah. That does sound pretty cool. And I, I think it'd be cool if there was something sort of like this with outcrops, like, you know, let's go take lots of photos and identify everything we can in all the road cuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that would be kind of cool. I have talked um, to some people about doing a kind of like ID app like that. Um, and I think that would be something cool too, as I read so much about, you know, the integration of technology and and nature, just because I'm a Luddite, I have no smart devices, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, but you can't get away from it. That's how people work now, right? And so there's a whole lot of like, how how do you incorporate smart devices with nature without, and keep people engaged? Because little kids want to see this stuff. And that's one of those things where you can have something that you follow along with, you know, whether it's like RFID stuff that'll tell you about this rock outcrop or when you give somebody a purpose to go out into the woods with, which we'll talk about when we talk about the fun paper. Well, I remember the early version of this, which was when you went into a park, you would buy or borrow <laughs> the cassette tape <laughs> that you would put in your car and, you know, it would say, okay, drive. And then when you see this, pull over and start the uh, tape and you'd pull exactly. over and hit it and it would describe whether the rock that you were looking at or whatever. And, Oh, now man. continue on the main road. Exactly. Um, Hot Springs has this too. I don't know how long they've had this or how many times you've been to Hot Springs, Arkansas. Um, they have, it's perpetually playing on a radio station. So you tune into this radio station and it'll go through these like five different stops on this little scenic, scenic drive. So you have to, you know, wait till it starts. 
Right. And then go and get it. But um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots well, of and- appy stuff now like that, but... Yeah. Well, actually, speaking of Hot Springs, I had mentioned to, uh, there was a, a swung meetup down in Houston. Oh, cool. And where we all got together and had some beer and somebody had mentioned they were going to Hot Springs. And I said, you should go crystal digging. And they sent me some pictures. They did. Uh, oh, <laughs> and went nice. course crystal digging. Oh, that's awesome. Did they get anything good? Yeah, they got some really nice crystals. Nice. I've never actually done that. It is way more fun than going to the diamond mine and not getting anything. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of I've heard more disappointed trips from the diamond mine than not disappointed trips. I think I've been there 3 or 4 days total. Mm-hmm. And I even built a really big like sifting pan. Mhm. And had just no luck <laughs> wow okay yeah we're never gonna do that but there's lots of really cool courts there yeah no you get lots of courts but uh but if you go to like i went to uh, ron coleman mining and you can pay so much and they'll bring a front end loader of dirt and dump it for you that's awesome and you know that's your pile of dirt to defend with your rock hammer <laughs> to the death <laughs> Oh, sorry. That's just me. <laughs> yeah. No, it was uh, it was really fun, though. I went down there and spent several days doing it and came back with more quartz crystals and clusters than I know what to do with. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's great stuff. Kids love that, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but we need something more like that for geology because th- there are other things in bio, too. There's uh, bird counting. There's trees and all kinds of things that you can go count for biology oh yeah that backyard bird science. count. yeah it's a huge thing through the cornell ornithology lab and um they also have a merlin is their app that sort of goes along with that um and then bud burst um that was one of the first ones i heard too and this is sort of looking at climate change because the timing of when trees are blooming is changing and so this is one of those things to be like, hey, go outside and look at your trees in the springtime and let us know, you know, when this type of tree starts to bloom and stuff like that. So, yeah, tons of stuff for bio. We need more stuff for us. Or do you have stuff for us? <laughs> well, I mean, there are some things. Um, the biggest problem is with bio, you already have the tool you need, which is your eyes and a smartphone. Yeah. That's true. A lot of what we need, it's like, okay, well, first procure a $20,000 broadband seismometer. Okay. <laughs> and that stops most people right there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So there was some chat in Slack about making your own seismometer. And Iris actually has a seismometer kit that I've redesigned the electronics on, and we're trying to get that into production for them. Uh, that's, that's for fun. schools. Okay. How's this different than the Raspberry Shake? Uh, so this is actually a long arm seismometer. Like oh, when, okay. if you draw us a cartoon seismometer with the spring and the oil damping bath and the coil and the oh. magnet, that's what this is. Oh, okay. That's cool. So the Raspberry Shake uses a geophone with some force balanced accelerometer technology uh, to help extend the geophone's frequency response down. But it's never going to be able to see the low frequency content that this can, as well that's, as this can. That's super cool. And um, it's just a different instrument for a different thing. And it's much more sciencey looking. <laughs> yes, but it's also a lot more expensive. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I mean, Raspberry Shake is not inexpensive either. Yeah, but it's within the realm of buying for some schools. Right, and I'm really surprised at, so there's another project, the uh, the micro-rad monitor mm-hmm. that was big a couple of years ago, and it's still going, uh, where you could buy a radiation detector and plug it oh. into your network, and you pop up as a dot on a map of other radiation detectors. Okay. And thousands of people have done this, spent like three, four hundred bucks mm-hmm. on this. And it blow. I mean, I think it's great, but it blows my mind how many people are willing to spend the money to add themselves as a station in these networks. 
that's very interesting. When I think of citizen science, I think of people, you know, doing it for free. <laughs> right. But there are lots of other, so you can do things like um, Matt and Agile Scientific, they have this thing called Pick This, mm-hmm. where it's an app where you can log in and it'll say, like, okay, pick where you think the major unconformity is in the seismic section. And so everybody picks where they think it is, and then you get a heat map, like a, a probability distribution of where it actually is. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> cool idea. And anybody can <laughs> do it. So I mean, you can go on right now and sign up. Uh, That's super cool. So there are things like that that require time. And then there are things like the National Weather Service co-op program that require time and a little bit of investment of I'm going to go out and take a rain gauge reading every 24 hours and report it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there are levels to this <laughs> for sure. And that's something I hadn't thought about till I read some articles about the citizen science. And also there's some there's some things where it's like you can prove that you're invested and then as a participant in the citizen science project, you'll sort of get trained to do like more advanced stuff, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and a that. lot of things like uh is it Galaxy Zoo, I think, have trainings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, you're going to go through this little training course online, and it's going to tell you how to interpret these images. And then we're going to have the same image interpreted by three or four people, and we're going to take the majority and weight that by how experienced each picker is. Right. It's like if somebody's mm-hmm. been picking for five years, their vote's going to get a lot more count than somebody who this is their third thing they've done on their own. Right. Uh this is kind of that great. that's fascinating and it's it's the only way in an era where machine learning is kind of going to take over uh, in terms of large data set classification and processing we have to be able to label large sets of data and the only way to do that is with lots of people right exactly large sets of people looking at it which is prohibitively time consuming and expensive and for someone that's like, yeah, I think this stuff's cool. I'm willing to donate my brain power, my computer power, my time to this. It's it's neat. And it also makes it, I think that these citizen science initiatives are such a huge part, especially of like, say, broader impacts, because it really makes everybody own it. People are so scared of science. I teach a non-majors science course. You know, because everyone at the university has to have one. And everyone is scared to death of science. Yes. And these are not the people we run with. And so you forget that, yeah, the majority of people don't think they can do science or be a scientist. When the simple fact is every day when you get dressed and you think about what you're going to wear, you've performed the scientific method. (laughs) Right. It's not that a... It's not that you go out and you're like, I'm going to do science. Correct. <laughs> you go out and you solve a problem. <laughs> and we have decided to call that science. Right. Yeah. But that's but that's the idea that people get. Um, we had a speaker today, actually at our school, who we'll totally have on the podcast. And her entire thing that she presented was because she went to a conference or no she she worked at a um a climatology modeling sort of center and she wound up saying people were like oh that's crazy you're looking at thousands of years ago that's nuts for meteorology this lady over here is looking at coral that are hundreds of thousands of years old ha 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 look at your resolutions they're so different and then they right. and and so and then they literally just started talking and that was her entire project, you know what I mean? Like so, And they've gotten all this funding to do these cool, you know, looking at coral and looking at climate models sort of thing. And it's like they just bumped into each other, not even thinking that, that anything was going to happen. So, yeah, people don't understand how science gets done. And by making them a stakeholder in science, it only supports more funding for science and drives important projects you know makes them even better and not to mention i mean this affects their world too right 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're not apart from the system. We're all a part of it. So let's do it. Which And I, I, I love the aspect that no matter what you're into, there's a way to tickle whatever you're interested in and do it. There's so many. <laughs> like when I you can go out and go camping and that makes you excited. I can go out and build a sensor and that makes me excited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and somewhere there's, yeah, there's a citizen science project for those people that are just like us that, you know, can help contribute to someone's research. Yeah. And it gives, I mean, it also makes science more accessible to someone who might not have the means physically, financially, whatever, location wise to go out and see or do some of these things. Uh, yes. I, yep. How many people get to go look at radio telescope data? Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, anybody. Now, if you've got an internet connection, you can go to your local library and boom, you're, you're part of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like for real part of it, not like a oh, that's cute, you did this thing, but no, you're legitimately contributing to the science. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the scientists get so excited. Yes. <laughs> when people want to help because somebody cares. Yes, exactly. Sometimes it's hard to, uh, it's hard to answer that question. Why does this matter sometimes? <laughs> because it yeah. obviously matters very deeply to you. <laughs> but who else does it matter to? And this is one way to get lots of people excited about science in general. And then it all matters. Yes. Mm-hmm. But how do we run a successful citizen science project? <laughs> you know, that's that's a tough question. And I think it's one that we're going to roll over into everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! So it's not a fun paper per se, but... Well, it is a paper, and I found it enjoyable, so... There we go. <laughs> Definition fulfilled. <laughs> um, and that's the name of it, How to Run a Successful Citizen Science Project. <laughs> yeah, so a uh, fantastic segue there. And You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this was uh, Nature Index uh, Conroy uh, recently, mm-hmm. just a few months ago. Right. Yeah. And, and- it, they talk about these principles of how can you do this? And all of the citizen science projects they talk about in this paper, I hadn't heard of, which was super cool. Um, and this this broader impacts thing, I said at the beginning of the show, which you know you have to you have to do this in every grant that you put out there. And so many of these were things that happened and then fell by the wayside, and then whatever, it's over, right? Um, and so the broader impact is negligible in a sense. And I thought this was cool because when they talk about these citizen science projects in here, you know, establishing them, but also keeping them running successfully is what you want to do. And (laughs) they say, you know, the first thing is to keep it simple. Yeah. So if it's really complicated, if to participate first, you need to download and compile the C++ program (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and then you you simply link that up you, by the way you have to be running this on ubuntu but a special ubuntu <laughs> and I, or first you must go through this 80 hour training course on bird identification it's not going to happen yeah correct you're going to get 12 people who are probably already on your staff anyway <laughs> so I, I think that's a really important thing and it's hard to do with some of these problems like how do you explain how to pick surface waves for surface wave dispersion to somebody who has never heard of frequency before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can do it. It just takes somebody that has those kind of communication skills, which generally isn't us. Correct. <laughs> I mean, we we might be a little bit better, but yeah. Exactly we try, right. <laughs> yes, but generally it's try. not the expert. <laughs> Correct. Um, so maybe well, that just means we're not experts. <laughs> well, uh, I could have told you that. Um, <laughs> so they, yeah, keep it simple. And have you heard of this? Well, you're kind of talking about the rat at home thing that they're talking about right here. 
different program. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, but, but the at-home things that are doing this. Um, and so this is an astronomy citizen science project. Yeah, and they said, well, people know how, obviously, to upload photos to Facebook. <laughs> And so we're going to teach them how to use this tool to create uh, multi-wavelength image composites. Uh, it's a web tool. And then you upload them to the Facebook group where people look at them and comment on them. And it, we sort of had this idea several years ago in the Rock Mechanics community about like how useful would it be for you to be able to post a data set and people to give it like hearts or the cry emoji <laughs> or like, how could you get people to vote on the quality of this data set? Oh, that's interesting. I think that should be a part of every peer reviewed article now. <laughs> yeah. And, and the Facebook style of likes came up uh, and then they take their top volunteers and they uh, give them the opportunity to go to a week long boot camp where the scientists really give them some intense training. Yeah. That's awesome. So that's even better for the scientists then because, gosh, there's so much data for astronomy stuff. Yes. Because the sky is always on. <laughs> and we have very expensive tools that should always be listening because they're very expensive tools. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, so that's really cool. I thought this, and this was the first one that I had sort of read anything about that, like, power user sort of training that can happen with a citizen scientist thing. I didn't realize that there was that much effort put into this stuff. Yeah. So that's really cool. Uh, the second piece they had was to listen to your participants. Mm -hmm. um, this was really cool. This is hard to do in geology, obviously, <laughs> but <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so they talk about, Going into um, places like Brazil, Kenya, Namibia, and Cameroon and trying to get the indigenous communities to help them track illegal poaching. I thought that was interesting. And you need to, you can't walk in as an outsider to a community and say, hello, community, this is the way we're going to do this. Yeah. I think this is that never important. goes well. No, it doesn't. And it's so much of the time exactly what happens. <laughs> right. Yeah, you need, you need to learn from the community. You need to integrate with the community. You need to show that you're there as an equal partner in this. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And you have to listen to them first and foremost because, yes, this is what you're studying, but also you don't live there. You know, you don't have the knowledge that comes with a place just simply from being in that place and so that's this is an important lesson and i bet it's where a lot of citizen science things might break down by scientists acting like gurus and you know being pejorative to the citizens they're trying to recruit to help them yeah, I mean, and people are going to want to know what they're helping you do and saying like, well, it's a very complicated thing and you could not possibly understand it. Yeah. Like, good luck getting help. Yeah, no kidding. You're like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> so, yeah. So then they say that you should also, related to that, give feedback and stay in touch. And I can tell you from doing seismometer deployments, this is so important. Mm -hmm. People want to know what you're doing with that weird box. Why are you burying it there? But more importantly, people want to know, what would you get out of this? And I've often had people say, hey, if you publish something or get anything out of here, do you mind sending me a copy of it? So I always thought that was really neat. That, oh, yeah, of course you want to know this thing, you know, that I'm studying in your neck of the woods. Um, you, you forget that as a scientist, too. Well, and it happened to be when we put some of the seismometers out after the 2011 earthquake in Oklahoma that while we were putting the seismometers out, of course, there were lots of little earthquakes happening, little aftershocks. Mm -hmm. And so we could actually show homeowners as we were installing the instrument, be like, you see all those little bumps? Those are all little earthquakes. They're <laughs> happening right now. Like you just saw it happen. Uh, that's super cool. I it, just it was super cool. A few people did not, they were not comforted by that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's true. 
probably not excited. <laughs> I just remember hanging out with that little puppy dog that jumped into our truck full of seismometers and, you know, that was my citizen science was petting this guy's ranch dog. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember loading all the seismometers up in the, the back area of, I had a Ford Escape at the time, and thinking the equipment in this car is worth like five times what the car's worth. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a good time though. That was very interesting. Was uh, we fun. also learned the importance and I still have them. They're actually stuck on the door inside my building of labeling. Uh huh. Yes. So I, ha- I have magnetic signs that they're very generic. They just say geology and geophysics survey. Mm-hmm. Yep. But if you, without those, undoubtedly you will be pestered. Oh yes. Yeah, and exactly. not pestered in the good way. <laughs> right. With them, you get pestered in the good way. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. So keeping in touch and letting people know that their efforts are appreciated, but also that they're going towards a real thing. And it's like we've kind of performed this experiment at field camp, too. You know, we have geophysics field camp. And it when you sort of fake it... <laughs> And you're like, okay, we're going to deploy this whole, you know, line of geophones back in the day when they were all wired, right? <laughs> and we're going to, you know, hit this plate, but we're probably not going to see anything. No one cares. <laughs> right? Right. Like, okay, so you learn how to plug in some geophones. But if you don't get to look at the data and nothing you're producing is meaningful, no one cares. But when you're like, hey, we're going to go try to image this fault or this thing, people are excited about it. Even if, you know, it's not something that they're studying, but they're like, oh, yeah, let's do this job. And so to follow up with these citizen scientists and say, look, this is where your efforts are going to, hey, it resulted in, and they talk about it in here, too, um, they've actually talked about it in relation to all these, you know, it's, this has resulted in 77 scientific papers, you know, people don't need to know the nitty gritties of all that scientific paper, but it's cool to be like, hey, I contributed to the scientific paper, you know? Yes. So that's, that's important and definitely something people probably forget to do. <laughs> uh, oh, definitely. And I, I think, you know, by making your project accessible, it also makes that easier. Having good data visualization makes that easier. Having a website that people can go to and read about and learn about it, you know, we all think, well, we write crappy prose for our website sometimes. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm always shocked if I go look at traffic and say, like, okay, so, you know, oh, well, for a while I had a really not that great about page on my business website. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and looked at traffic and realized that that was the single page on my website that any unique <laughs> visitor spent the most time on was about. Oh my gosh. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I should probably make that better. Probably do that. Uh-huh. So it's the same thing with your science. Most people are going to read the abstract, the conclusions, mm-hmm. or the press release. Make those good and stop worrying about the fiddly details of one sentence in the discussion that you've argued over for three months. Amen. Amen to that. And just make your plot in Excel. No one will ever notice. False. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Um, So even though that's sort of the paper we read is how to make a good one, I did want to tangentially mention that Nature Index also, last year around this time, had published something that talks about how citizen science papers actually have more impact. And by that, of course, we're speaking about citations. <laughs> right, because what would it be without quantifying <sighs> our impact on the field? You know, um, <laughs> we're scientists, but it is dumb. But I thought this was crazy. So the outcomes of these citizen science projects are cited, they say, four times more than those that do not involve the public. But interestingly enough, they get lots of citations for the first few years. And then after eight years, like none. Yeah. Well, you know, but I think that's <laughs> probably because they, 
you're collecting a very large data set that quickly, if you've got an amazing data set like that, you can mine it out. Mm-hmm. And people want to mine it out, so you right. get more activity on it. And then the next shiny data set comes along. Yeah, yeah. So it has more babies than, than yes. the other data sets. <laughs> and exactly. those citation numbers are no joke. I mean, if this is a not a super thrilling number, but if you publish a paper in insert name here of generic geology journal, you're probably going to be looking at zero to one citations per year after the first year for the life of the paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody's providing download numbers on papers, like how many people downloaded your paper this year. Mm-hmm. But I would argue it's probably useless because how many papers do you have that you've downloaded sitting in a folder that you've not read? Shh. <laughs> um, you know what? One of the more uh, <laughs> gratifying moments to me was when I was standing next to, you know, this scientist that I super, you know, one of my mentors and like, oh, gosh, she knows so much. I'll never know as much as her. And she's like, let me pull this paper. And she opens up her papers folder. And like, oh, it wasn't half, but it was fully a third of them were unread. Yeah. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so, yeah, you're correct. That means nothing. <laughs> well, I would really like to hear from you all what citizen science projects that you have participated in or are participating in. Or if you're planning a citizen science project, please get a hold of us. Yes. We'd love to talk to you about it and have you on the show to help spread the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Shannon, how can they send in their citizen science projects to us? Let us know. Email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can tweet us as well. We're at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And you can come hang out on the Slack channel that we've got going on. We're part of the Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 